when I was growing up, and I, I did come to go to Sunday school for much of my childhood, but I don't know if, I ever, if this thought ever occurred to me that the Lord is beautiful, that you can look upon his face and see that he's beautiful, appealing, attractive, lovely, and uh, life-giving. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, what a thought that we can gaze upon your face, we can see you for who you are, and we can recognize uh, your goodness, your graciousness. We glimpse something of your glory, and today, Lord, we, we sing to you, we come to you, and acknowledge that you are beautiful. You're beautiful with the kind of beauty that we need, a beauty that is not cheap or easy or superficial, but a beauty that is deep and lasting and according to truth. Draw us near to you today, Lord, especially on this Easter morning. Uh, our hearts are full. We seek you. We're hungry for you. And pray that you would reveal yourself to us in this time in your word, through the faith stories that will be shared, through the baptism, through our worship, and through our fellowship. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How, how wonderful that we could be here uh, today. And uh, I remember when I was growing up, I, I did not really grow up in a Christian family, but my parents did send me and my three siblings uh, to Sunday school. But my parents would usually only come to church two, maybe three days a year. And you can guess what days those were, right? Uh, Christmas, Easter, and uh, sometimes Mother's Day. And I'm thankful for the, the heritage, the upbringing that, that they gave me. I'm, I'm thankful, even though my dad didn't usually go to church, I'm thankful that he was willing to drive us kids and drop us off and, and then pick us up when it was all over. Uh, but today is a special day. It's, it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, and uh, especially today, we're just really glad to be here, and I'm glad to see all of you here. Uh, today, I want to talk about the depths of God's love, which I think is inappropriate on this day, uh, because in the crucifixion of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, we see his love uh, demonstrated, lived out, exhibited for us. Uh, if you're interested, there are some, there's a sort of an outline of this message in your worship program. Uh, you can pull that out, although it's a, it's a very simple outline today. I want to talk about the depths of God's love, especially as shown on that first Easter morning, uh, what we now call Easter. And we're going to look at uh, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. But I think I do need to read some verses right before that just to give us some context. Uh, and a lot of you know this story that uh, a couple of days earlier, Jesus had been uh, betrayed, crucified, uh, which was a horrific, horrible violent and uh, humiliating and extremely painful way to die. He was executed uh, by the Romans at the urging of Jewish leaders, and he died that horrific death on the cross. And, you know, his followers, they're called disciples, they were there. I mean, they were watching, some close by, some at a distance, but they saw uh, their Savior, their Lord, die. And now they were not, you know, and this is important for us to realize, they were not expecting him to be raised from the dead. Although Jesus had repeatedly told them the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and, and handed over and he's going to be crucified and on the third day he will rise again, uh, they didn't get it. They weren't expecting that. And so you can imagine a couple days earlier they had seen their Lord uh, killed in the most excruciating way. Uh, they're afraid. They're hopeless. And then everything turns around on that first Easter morning. So I want to actually start in John chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 11. Uh, now Mary stood outside the tomb, Jesus' tomb, crying, and as she wept, she 
bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seating where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now, she doesn't recognize them as angels. They're just men. And uh, she says to them, they say, why are you crying? She says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She's not expecting a resurrection. She's thinking somebody stole the body of Jesus. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. She's not looking for him to be alive. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? The same question that the two men had asked her a few minutes ago. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? That's a good question for us to ponder for a moment on this day. Who is it that you're looking for? Everybody's looking for some things or someone. We're looking for hope, perhaps. We're looking for uh, a savior. We're looking for forgiveness, redemption, a new start. Uh, we're looking for love. We're looking for just some joy and some peace in the midst of a, a world of turmoil. Uh, what are you looking for? Who is it you're looking for? And then uh, the scripture goes on to say, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And have you ever had this experience where someone calls you on the phone and nowadays you can often tell who's, who's calling because you have, you know, caller ID or whatever, but think about the days before that or, or when you don't have that. And somebody calls and if they don't say, hi, this is Wayne, or they don't identify themselves, you're there pondering for a moment, who is this, right? And sometimes there's somebody in your life that you talk with frequently, they don't even bother to identify themselves. They just say, oh, oh, oh hi, Bill, and you're supposed to know who it is, right? Well, when Jesus says, Mary, she, she immediately recognizes this is Jesus. Just like if somebody were to call you on, on the phone and someone that you love, someone you're very familiar with, as soon as they say, uh, your name, hi, Wayne, you recognize who that is, right? So this is what happens. Jesus, at first, she doesn't th know who he is. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, sir, if you've carried the body of Jesus away, uh, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, in Aramaic Rabboni, a rabbi, teacher. And she recognizes that it's Jesus, which is a shock, total shock, right? And then Jesus says, do not hold on to me which I imagine she, she sees Jesus. She probably just runs to him and she's hugging him and holding him and weeping. And, and Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, which means his disciples, and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And now with the resurrection of Jesus, he is acknowledging, he's telling Mary, Go tell my brothers, my disciples, my closest friends, uh, that I've risen and I'm going to ascend uh, to my Father, my God, but also now he's your father, he's your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, so imagine you're with the disciples that day. Mary comes running to you, you know her, and, and together you've journeyed and traveled with Jesus for the last few years, and um, she runs up to you and says, I've seen the Lord. Now, what, what do you do? You just immediately come to faith and say, wow, that is so cool. I want to see him too. Well, would it surprise you that the disciples uh, did not greet her words well? They're still skeptical. In fact, uh, one of the other uh, uh, gospels, the gospel of Luke chapter 24, says when the women came with this testimony, we've seen the Lord, it says that the men, the disciples, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. 
You know, no one would ever make up this story because if you made up this story, you would not have the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection be women. I'll tell you why. Women in that society were viewed as second-class citizens. They didn't have credibility. In fact, they couldn't even legally testify in a court of law. That's how little women were respected in their word and, and their word of testimony. They couldn't testify in law. So if you made up this story, you wouldn't you know, write the story so that the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus is a woman, and that woman goes to tell the men what they have not yet realized and what they don't expect. Jesus has risen. But this is what happened. So she says, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, I want to pick up our passage for today, and you can look at it with me, John chapter 20, verses, uh, we'll look at 19 to 31, but at the first, I just want us to look at uh, the first couple of verses, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 20, and you'll see if you have your you know, notes there, I'm calling this section Jesus' love for the fearful. You ever feel fear fearful? Do you know what it is to be afraid? Here's what happened, John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, that would have been Sunday, that morning Mary had gone to the tomb, seen Jesus. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, and I want you to catch what it says next, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Right in the midst of their fear, their gathering, they're protected, they're afraid, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, even though Mary Magdalene had told them, I've seen the Lord, they didn't believe her. To them, it's like nonsense. And so our passage opens. It's the first day of the week. The disciples are gathered together, uh, but they're not rejoicing. They're not praising. They're not there to worship. They're mourning, they're grieving, and they're very fearful because the same Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus or had him crucified might come after them next. And so we find them together. The doors are locked. These are scary times. And I, I know what it means to be afraid. Maybe you know what it means to be afraid. I think these are scary times. A lot of people in our country today are afraid that a certain Republican billionaire is going to be our next president. The news, if you watch the news, if you read the news, the news alerts us daily of all kinds of abundant reasons for fear. I suppose the one that's very prominent on our minds this week, once again, is terrorism and the threat of terrorist violence. There's all kinds of things that we could be afraid of, of gun violence and crime, of, of global warming and how that's going to affect our future, of economic turmoil and uncertainty and the ever-expanding national debt and how that's going to affect uh, our economy, uh, the trampling of traditional morality, uh, the earthquakes, diseases imported often from other countries into our country, flooding. Uh, there's a lot of people wondering, what is the world coming to? Where are we headed? What's going to happen? And we can be tempted a little bit like those disciples on that first Easter to just cower in fear, to be anxious, to dread the future. Um, we can just look around at our dangerous world, accept the reality of it, uh, that we face an uncertain future, and then as a result, just cower in fear. What is the world coming to? Where are we going? We can be tempted to live in fear and sort of just figuratively, I suppose, do what the disciples did, which is just to lock themselves away, trying to seek a refuge and safety. I want you to notice in our story from the Bible that something happens then, right at that moment when they've got the doors locked and they're trying to seek this refuge and, and safe place, and, and uh, something happens to totally change that environment of fear. You know what happens? Jesus shows up. 
unexpected, the risen, resurrected Jesus, and all of a sudden he's standing with them with an alternate message. Rather than, yeah, be afraid, it's a scary world out there. Uh, he, rather, he says this, peace, peace be with you. And you may know the background of this word peace, the, the Hebrew word shalom. It, it doesn't just mean peace like peace out, man. It doesn't just mean, oh, the war has ended and, and warring nations have signed a, a treaty, a, a truce, which often feels so fragile. Uh, the, the word shalom means uh, peace in the sense of wholeness, fullness of life. Uh, when people say shalom, they mean uh, God's goodness, the richness of life as God intended. And that's kind of behind this word here that Jesus is saying. He says, peace be with you. You know, to a world in turmoil, to people who are uncertain and afraid and insecure, he says to them, and I, and I, and I think he says to us, uh, peace be with you. You don't have to be overcome by fear, even though it's so tempting. He gives this alternate message, and then he shows them his, his hands and his side. You know what that means, right? Uh, they had seen him crucified. They had seen the nails pierce his hands and his feet. They had seen the sword thrust into his side. Now he's risen and resurrected. He has an eternal body now, and yet the scars are still there. The wounds are still there. He shows them his hands, his side. He says, it's really me. You can't believe it's me because you saw me die, but it's really me, and I'm alive again. He shows them his hands and his side. And then the Bible says this, total transformation, right? They're cowering in fear, locked away, trying to you know, seek refuge and safety. But in verse 20, it says, after he said this, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And that's what made all the difference. Uh, the, the brutal crucifixion now, you know, it's still fresh in their memories, but it is not the last word. Death did not have the last word. Satan, the evil one, did not have the last word. Suddenly, life is transformed, and the disciples are overjoyed when they see the Lord. Now, I think this is where we see clearly uh, Jesus' deep love for the fearful. If you're afraid, God doesn't scold you and say, hey, man, what's wrong with you? Get with the program. But Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. You don't need to be afraid. Uh, the late Pope John Paul II, he had this saying that I love about Easter. He says, do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are the Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. Do not abandon yourself to despair. We are the Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. You know, later some, some of the New Testament writers would write about this peace, the peace that passes understanding, the peace that the world cannot give. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything. And when he writes that, I think he's acknowledging that we have a lot of reasons why we might be anxious. He has to try to address the problem of anxiety because it was prevalent in his day as well as in ours. And he says, do not be anxious about anything, but instead, here's what you can do. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We can always be anxious, and for a lot of us, that's our default mode. We just fall into it naturally. But he says, you know, there is an alternative. Rather than being mired in anxiety and fear and dread, he says, in every situation, even the really difficult ones, even the really scary ones, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Lay it before him. And then it goes on to say this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will stand guard over your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. What a good word. What a good word about how Jesus loves those who are fearful and afraid. And he comes to them, and he comes to bring peace, shalom, wholeness and fullness and goodness and hope. And as a result, the disciples are overjoyed. Uh, another uh, place in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the writer says this. He says, humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I love that. That's 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. But one of the reasons I love this passage, you want to think about this, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand and cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And you know what we see right there? We see the truth of God's power, but also God's grace, right? Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And you can humble yourself under him because he is powerful. He is strong enough and big enough to watch over you, to care for you, to watch over your loved ones, right? He is the, the God of the mighty hand. That's a symbol of strength, power, might. Uh, but he's also the God, you can cast your anxieties on him because he's also the God of the, with the tender heart. The God with the mighty hand, the God with the tender heart, and because of who he is, humble yourselves before him and cast all your worries, all your fears upon him. It's a good word. Jesus loves those who are fearful, but he also comes to them and he says, because of the resurrection, you don't have to remain in fear. Peace be with you. Be not afraid. Easter means resurrection. And resurrection means you don't have to live in fear. Even the worst event, like the crucifixion of our Savior, the betrayal of justice, excruciating pain, humility, even the worst event in history is now called Good Friday because in the worst event, God redeemed it. God brought good out of it. We now know, people didn't understand it at the time, we now know that when Jesus died on that cross, it wasn't just the worst thing that could happen. It's called Good Friday because on that cross, he was paying the price for our salvation. He was paying the penalty for our sins so that by his wounds we can be healed and we can come to wholeness. So Easter means resurrection and resurrection means you don't have to live in fear and even the worst event can be redeemed and God can bring good out of the bad things that happen out of this awful day. You know, Jesus says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now that would mean nothing if he was crucified but not raised. But because he was raised, he lives and reigns eternally. In fact, he says he's going to come back for all of, all of his people, all those who place their faith in him. And so we live this day in light of that day, that day of victory, that day of hope. And so never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and be not afraid. Now, this passage in John 20 also talks about Jesus' love for the inadequate. And so I want to re go on in John 20 uh, and read verses 21 to 23. John 20, verses 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Maybe they needed to hear it twice. Maybe some of us need to hear it twice. God's peace be with you. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we may not get this, but, but the word spirit, both in Greek and in Hebrew, can mean wind, breath, or spirit. 
and it's translated different ways depending on the context. But wind, breath, or spirit, the, the same Greek word, the same Hebrew word, is behind that meaning, wind, breath, or spirit. So there's a little bit of a play on words here where it says, Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the spirit. He's giving them the Holy Spirit. And, and, and then he says to them, uh, John 20, verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, here's what's happening. As their fear is transformed by the reality of the resurrection, then the story of that first Easter takes a turn. And after demonstrating to these frightened disciples that he's alive, Jesus now not only gives them peace, comfort, reassurance, he now is giving them a mission, or he's recommissioning them. He says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. We know this, that Jesus, you know, uh, he existed eternally because he is God. Uh, but he was sent to the earth during, a, you know, a brief span of, of, of our earthly historical time. And, and he says, the Father sent me here. And as the Father has sent me into the world, even though it is fallen and broken and rebellious and often dark and too often violent, as the Father has sent me into this dark world, now I'm sending you. And so he goes from, you know, comfort to mission. And he's saying, you know, I want you to go take this saving message of the good news, the message of the gospel, and bring this good news of Jesus Christ to the, the broken and to the violent and to the fearful world around you. Uh, guide the lost, guide the least, guide the last to help them find their way back to God. Now, if, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your mission as well. Jesus says, not only am I resurrected, not only did I conquer death, not only do I live and reign, not only do I give you peace, not only do, do I enable you to overcome your fear, but I've got a purpose for you. I want to fill your life with significance. I've got a mission for you. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. In a few weeks after that, before Jesus ascended into heaven, for 40 days after his resurrection, he made appearances to his disciples, different times, different places. And then at the end of it, or near the end of it, he gave them the, this final commission before he's about to ascend to heaven. And in that final commission, Jesus gives all of his followers these words, words to live by, words to march by. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And when Jesus said that, he's issuing our marching orders. He's saying, I want you to, to take up your part in my mission, just as I came from the Father and was sent into the world. Now I'm sending you into the world too to carry on my mission. His physical presence is no longer with us. You know now he, how he's present now in the world? Through his body. The church is called the body of Christ. We are now the presence of Jesus in the world and we're to be caught up in his mission and take it on for ourselves. Go and make disciples of all nations. The stakes couldn't be higher. In fact, he expresses it this way in John 20. He says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, what's that all about? 
Uh, what does that really mean? And I think what Jesus is saying is not, not that we really forgive people's sins. Only God can do that. But he's saying we can guide them to the way by which their sins are forgiven. And if we don't guide them to the way by which their sins are forgiven, their sins will remain unforgiven. I mean, the stakes couldn't be higher. He, he has entrusted his mission, his message into our hands. And it's to be carried out by us. It's an incredible thing. Tell people that through Jesus, their sins have been forgiven as they accept him. Tell Jesus that they can begin again with God, with a clean slate. That people who wandered very far from God or maybe never knew him in the first place, they can find their way to God uh, through Jesus. They can be washed and made new and cleansed. They don't have to live in guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And they need to know that. They need to hear that so that they can know that they are forgiven and that they can begin anew and afresh with God. Now, as we recognize that Jesus doesn't just come, come to comfort us, but, but he's also sending us on this mission to go and reach out and, and serve the world just as God the Father sent him to reach out and to serve the world. Uh, when I think about that, I feel inadequate. Do you ever feel that way? Like, man, the needs are so vast. The world is so big. Who is up for such a, a world-changing mission? Uh, what if we go and they don't believe us? What if they don't receive us? What if they reject us or ridicule us or even persecute us? I've been in countries where the Christians have suffered horrific persecution just because they believe in Jesus, just because they worship Jesus and proclaim Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of uh, temptation to just feel inadequate, maybe to cave in or, or maybe to back off from the mission because it's not politically correct, right? It's not conventional wisdom. And as we recognize uh, that Jesus is sending us, we feel inadequate, and, and, and Jesus loves those who feel inadequate. And you know how he demonstrates that? This is in John uh, chapter 20, verse 22. Right after he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, then he says this, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and he says, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is God himself, but who comes to live not only among us, but within us. God's Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And so as we recognize that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and as we place our faith in him, he gives us the gift, not only the gift of forgiveness, but the gift of his life to live in us and to be lived through us, uh, through his Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is the gift. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is God's provision for all of our inadequacy. We feel powerless. We feel like, man, I, I don't know how to do what God's asked me to do. Uh, I feel inadequate. I'm not brave enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not astute enough. I'm not patient enough. Uh, I'm not astute enough to answer every question that people might ask me, to address every doubter or every skeptic. And, and the good news here is Jesus loves those who feel inadequate. And he does not send us out alone to fulfill his mission. He doesn't just say, oh, you have your assignment. Go do your homework. He says, I'm with you always, and I'm going to give you my spirit. You know, in the Gospel of John, 
uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, Jesus talks about this promise of the Holy Spirit. And he calls the Holy Spirit by a, an interesting uh, Greek word. The word is parakletos, parakletos. And you know what it means? Para means alongside or with, right? It means someone who comes alongside you to help you. And Jesus says, you know, when I go away physically, I'm going to send you the, the helper, the comforter, the parakletos. Some, some translations translated as helper, some comforter, counselor. It's just a hard word to translate because it has uh, such rich meaning and, and such full significance. But the idea is Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away physically, but I'm going to send you the one who's called alongside you to help you. Your companion, your counselor, your comforter. In fact, some translations translate it as your advocate. You know, like if you were uh, tried for a crime and you, and you had no lawyer and and you get the best lawyer in the world to come and defend you, he becomes your advocate or she becomes your advocate. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to send my advocate to stand with you and to give you wisdom and to remind you of the things that I taught and to teach you what to say and to enable you to stand boldly and to give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Jesus has this deep love for people who feel inadequate. And he's going to enable us to go on a spirit-empowered mission, a spirit-guided mission. We have people in our church right now that are in China, right, serving the Lord, uh, not by their own power, not by their own wisdom. Some of you just got back from a two-week mission, medical mission in Cambodia. And I know this, I know this too. You wouldn't dare go out there, no matter how well you trained and how many books you read about the culture or about how to share your faith or how to serve those uh, with medical needs. You wouldn't dare go out without the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? The Holy Spirit, God himself, come to help us, to, to walk alongside of us, to comfort us, support us, to advocate for us. And so Jesus has this deep love for the, the inadequate. He says, you know, receive the Holy Spirit. Don't go out there alone. You go on this Spirit-empowered, Spirit-guided mission. I'm going to join those in China uh, next week. And uh, I'm looking forward to it, but I feel inadequate. I feel like I'm going to face situations where I don't know what to say and where I can't answer people's questions and uh, where I'm not sure how to take the trains and, you know, where I don't know the language. And, but, you know, the thing that I have assurance of, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God's going to be with me every moment of every day. And you know what? Same is true for you. Same is true for you. Jesus' deep love for the inadequate. Now, I want to talk about one more thing that's in this passage. And, and I, I, I don't know. To me, this is part of the Easter message as well. It's about Jesus' love for the skeptic. Do you know that this Easter story has this whole thing about doubt and skepticism? Uh, there was a man uh, who was among the disciples, and his name is Thomas. He's one of the 12, you know, close followers of Jesus. For some reason, on that first Easter evening... When Jesus appeared in that locked room and, and said, peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, for some reason, Thomas was absent. I don't know. Maybe he, you know, there's a good game on TV or something, or maybe he was sick. Who, who knows? But for some reason, Thomas is absent. And here's what the scripture says. I want to read the end of the story from uh, uh, John chapter 20, verses 24 to, to 29. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. We don't know why he wasn't there. We don't know if this is an excused absence or unexcused absence. Anyway, he's not there. And so the other disciples told him afterward, we have seen the Lord. 
Now, remember when Mary said that and, and the disciples didn't believe her? Well, the disciples now, and not just one of them, but all of them, they're saying to Thomas, man, you should have been there. You missed a good meeting last night. Jesus showed up, you know. <laughs> you should have been there. We've seen the Lord. Now, I don't know what your reaction would be if you were Thomas, but here's his reaction. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So learn a couple things about Thomas. One is that he's not offended by gore and guts and, you know, I, I want to put my hand where the nail was. I want to put my hand in, in the side where the, you know, in his side where the spear pierced him. I mean, I don't know if he really literally did that, but, but you get something, you, you, you get a little glimpse into Thomas's personality. He's a skeptic, right? He says, well, it may be good for you, but not good for me, right? Maybe you saw it, but I didn't see it. You know, maybe Jesus appeared to you, but he didn't appear to me, and I'm not going to believe unless I see him and can touch him. Now, you ever felt that way a little? Like, I want to believe, but I'm having a hard time believing. One thing I notice about the disciples at this point is they don't say, Thomas, if you don't believe what we believe, get out of here. We don't want you among us. We can't, we can't tolerate any skeptics or doubters here. You know how I know they didn't do that? Because the passage goes on to say, a week later, when Jesus is going to appear to them again, you know who's in the room? Doubting Thomas. Okay? So uh, let's read the rest of the story. He says, you know, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, okay, they're still about, you know, concerned about security and persecution from the Jewish leaders. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, this is something about Jesus is, once he's resurrected, he's got a body. It's a physical body. You can touch it. He ate fish in front of them. and ate some bread in front of them. It's a physical body, but it's also a supernatural body. So he can apparently, you know, go through locked doors and walls. And, you know, he can, he can appear in one place and then moments later appear miles away. And, you know, so he's got a, a physical body, but it's a supernatural resurrected body. And so though the doors were locked, Jesus comes and he stands among them and he says what he often says, peace be with you. Except for you, Thomas, because you didn't believe. Yeah, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and go ahead, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The scripture doesn't tell us if Thomas really did that or not. But Thomas at that moment moves from a doubter. He has become a seeker. He's still hanging around. But now he becomes a believer. And the next verse says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And he recognizes not only that Jesus is resurrected, he recognizes that Jesus is deity, that he is God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Oh, this is where we show up in the passage. Did you catch this? Blessed are you, Tom, because you've seen me and you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And if you're a believer today, we're in the last half there of verse 29, aren't we? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And uh, at, the, at the end of the chapter, uh, the writer says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the book of John. It's 21 chapters. But he says, but these are written. I had to be very selective in writing what Jesus did. I, you know, there's no way you could say, 
say everything he did and said. But he says, uh, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's a good news. It's a good news word. It's a good news word. Well, here I think we see Jesus' love for the skeptic. He doesn't come and condemn Thomas. Why didn't you believe? What is wrong with you? You stupid idiot. Get out of here. That's not my Lord. That's not your Lord. Uh, Jesus has compassion. He said, hey, Tom, I know you weren't here. You missed a good meeting. But now you're here. If you want to, you know, feel the wounds in my hands, come on up. You want to stick your hand in my side? If you really want to do that, you know, do it. But then Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. You know what I learned from this story? There's a time for doubt. There's room for doubt. Thomas doesn't get expelled or excommunicated because he's doubting, right? In fact, he's still hanging around. In fact, if you want to move from a skeptic to a seeker, maybe not even a believer yet, but from a skeptic to a seeker, you know what you do? You do what Thomas did. You, you hang around with people who know Jesus. Maybe you're not convinced yet. You know, a lot of us. You think about this. Most of us who came to faith, didn't we come from a position of doubt? Didn't we have some skepticism before we embraced faith? Right? So there's got to be room for that. And there is room for that. But, but you don't want to be the kind of skeptic that says, my mind is made up. There is no God. Jesus is not God. Uh, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. See, Thomas is a skeptic. He's a doubter, but he's not that kind. He's kind of saying, you know, I don't really believe what you guys believe, but thanks for letting me hang out with you anyway. And, uh, you know, I'm open if Jesus were to reveal himself to me. And if you're open, I think, I think God can come to you. You know, Jesus says, well, well seek me, and, and, and those who seek will find, right? He says, knock on the door, because if you keep knocking, the door is going to be open. And, uh, you know, there's a verse in the Old Testament where, where God says, uh, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you, move, if you want to move from a, a skeptic to at least a seeker, you can do this. You can explore uh, the ways that God reveals himself through his word. I know people who just read the word of God. Read the Bible. You may not be even convinced it is the word of God, but since it claims to be the word of God, if you're open-minded, wouldn't you read it? And wouldn't you want to hear it taught? Wouldn't you want to study it with some other people? Right? So... Uh, there's a, faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. You know what faith is? Faith is believing in light of the evidence. Big difference, right? It's not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is believing in light of the evidence. And we have all kinds of evidence. We have the words of the Bible. We have the witness of history and how Jesus Christ has altered history irrevocably forever. Uh, we have the witness of countless of people who have met the risen Jesus and who have had their lives transformed by him. Uh, you're going to hear their stories, a few of them, this morning in a few minutes. So I want us to think about this. Jesus loves the skeptic, but don't be the kind of skeptic that says, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Be the kind of skeptic that says, well, I don't believe what you believe, not yet anyway, but I'm open. I'm going to start seeking. I'm going to start exploring. And then there comes a time to stop doubting and to start believing. Maybe this is your time. Maybe this is your day. All right, well, let's pray together. Lord, I know I can identify with uh, all of these people, with the fearful and with the inadequate and with the skeptic. 
Maybe a lot of us can. But we thank you, Lord, that on Easter you rose from the dead, that you conquered the forces of evil and darkness, and that now you bring peace and hope. And Lord, thank you for the gift of hope that you give us on Easter morning. Because of you, we know that no problem is too difficult. Because of you and your resurrection, we know that even death does not have power over us. And so we thank you for the gift of hope. And we thank you for the gift of joy that you gave to us when you were resurrected. And just like those disciples in that locked room on that first Easter morning, Lord, we know what it is to be afraid and anxious, to be defensive. And yet when you stood among them and when you pronounced peace, when you gave them your Holy Spirit, Lord, uh, their sorrow and anxiety and dread and fear turned to joy. And they were overjoyed when they saw you. And because of you, Lord, we know that no matter how challenging life may be, in the end we will rejoice again. So thank you, Jesus. We celebrate you, Jesus, with hearts full of praise and with gratitude for all of who you are and all that you've done for us. And so on this Easter, we would say, Alleluia. Praise be to God. We are the Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. Amen.